At times, it's only the absurd that can tell us the truth about where we are. And so I witnessed this from The Onion this past week, the online satirical news source. No way to prevent this, says only nation, where this regularly happens. No way to prevent this, says only nation, where this regularly happens. This that they're referring to, as probably most of us are aware, another mass shooting a little over a week ago in Santa Barbara, California. Seven dead, many others injured, some critically. And here we are again. I have felt helpless this last week. What would it take to change us? What would it take if Newtown didn't do it with all those precious dead children and their teachers? What would it take? What would it take to end or at least change a little bit a relationship to violence and to easy access to weapons of death? That's what guns are. They are weapons of death. What would it take to change our relationship? It makes me want to just throw up my hands. These mass shootings are all so awful. And so this one and the suffering it caused is not any worse or any easier than those that have came before it, have come before it. This one just had a particular kind of awful flavor and taste to it because we got to see into the barbaric motivations of this particular killer. I do not label him as crazy, as ill. It could be that that's the case, but there was no diagnosis that made him that. I think instead, to understand his motivations, we have to use some different words. Barbaric, vicious, immoral, evil. If you followed this story at all this past week, and I don't blame you if you wanted to turn away from it. We know that he had been planning this atrocity for a very long time. Even the police had come to visit him in his apartment. And he was greatly relieved that they didn't go into the other room where all the armaments were. He was able to form motive and intent. Yes, you could say morally he was depraved or degraded. But to go right to him being mentally ill is letting ourselves and him off the hook. We know that he had for a long time visited blogs, on-site places, in which men regularly railed against women in hateful, disgusting terms. And before we would like to say, okay, that's just a minor, minor subculture, let's recognize that uh, a guy like Tucker Max, who some of you might know, best-selling author of titles like I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell and Assholes Finish First, Millions of people have read him. And sometimes it's the kind of people who go to the kinds of places that the killer did. He penned a 140-page manifesto about his fixation and hatred of women. These are his words. And notice how objectifying they are, how dehumanizing they are. If I can't have it, I will destroy it. 
I will destroy all women because I can never have them. I will make them all suffer for rejecting me. Now alongside and woven into his misogyny was also white supremacy. Although being half Asian, he was fixated on white women, on blonde women, fixated wanting to be with them and then hating them at the same time. Interestingly enough, as fixated he was on people with blonde hair, when he was a younger man, he went to get his hair dyed blonde and railed against the stylist because she did not make it blonde enough. He railed against Asian men and African American men who had what he wanted and felt he could not ever get, which is the ability to date white women. Woven on top of that as well, too, he had a sense of classism and entitlement. He mentioned over and over again in his writings that he was descended from European nobility, that he came from other people who were better than other people. And he was aware of the fact that in his culture, in this affluent little community in which he lived, there was a car hierarchy. His words, a car hierarchy. And so when he got a BMW, he would be able to rise in that car hierarchy. With this man, with this killer, it is if almost all of our cultural, material, soul sicknesses were condensed into his life and then drawn out into their most vicious extremes. Now, I found nothing in his words, in terms of the violence, in terms of the hatred, that causes me anything but dismay and nausea. But there was a voice in what he said as well, too, that made me squirm. It was the voice of a young man and his ego feeling the sting of rejection and his immature reactions to it, and that somehow he was owed something. My late teens, 20-something romantic life, or as I like to imagine my romantic life at that time, was all bound up with my alcoholism and my ego and my immature yearnings, and I had to unlearn that stuff painfully if I was going to grow up. I recognized in him, not all of his hateful actions, but in part of his voice, what is my favorite definition of sin. Now, sin is not a word we mention very much up here because sin is so often used to belittle the experience of other people, marginal people. And sometimes we think if we mention sin in a progressive spiritual context, that means, you know, there's another word in front of that. We were originally sinners. But a long time ago, the theologian Augustine offered a definition of sin that resonates with me to this day, in which he said, sin is this. Sin is disordered loving. It is loving sometimes really good things, but in the absolute worst ways. What the killer thought that he wanted or said that he wanted are things that all of us might recognize are part and parcel of who we are. Sex and beyond that, affection, connection, love. Things basic to the human heart. It's just that in his awful, disordered hearts, he wanted these things in the worst and most vicious ways. To learn to want the good things in the best ways, that is healing our desire. 
There is right now in this society so much of, when we look at it, a desired disorder. It shows itself in hostility, in constant craving, in wanting mind, in oversized fear, and acts of aggression. One of the things I'm going to do when I'm on my sabbatical is a book waiting for me. It's got the great title and the chilling title, When Society is an Addict. I think it's time we take a look at the fact that addiction is not just a thing of individuals and families, but that there are features and factors baked right into the cake of this society and this place and this time that predisposes all of us in a variety of ways to desire disorders. When a killer strikes like he did in Santa Barbara. I like to remember that the word in Latin that gives us the English word monster is not just about snarly teeth and fangs and the scary stuff that goes bump in the night. The word monster means warning. The word monster means that something is out of alignment in the natural order of our culture and society. And so I think it is so important, yes, of course, wise to be repulsed by our monsters, and at the same time to also listen to our monsters. Pay attention. And that's why I'm preaching about what I'm preaching about this morning. Because we can't just turn away and say, oh, there's another lone wolf. There's a lot of lone wolves out there, aren't there? So I had planned for this morning a totally different message. Sometimes the news is bigger than my plans. Pretty much every day that's the case. I planned to preach on a totally different movie for spirit flicks, finding meaning in the movies. But I chose this movie instead that came out about six years ago that I'm not sure if many of us remember at all. James McAvoy, the Scottish actor, Angelina Jolie. I got to tell you when I thought, okay, another actioner, another blood and guts action flick. Yeah. No impression, very little, until this week. And I reflected on the atrocity in Santa Barbara. And I kept thinking about the, the main character in this story, played by James McAvoy. He is beset by anxiety attacks. He is put upon by everyone in his life. His best friend and his girlfriend are sleeping together. They don't care about his feelings. He is humiliated regularly by his boss. Everything, including his own shadow, frightens him until he comes to understand, this is why this is a fantasy, one day that he is descended from a long line of assassins, of killers for hire. And he finds his manhood by recognizing that he too can kill. And so by way of bloodshed and brutality, he becomes a man. The title, Wanted, the first way we're probably all supposed to understand is like, you know, Wanted, Dead or Alive, like Wanted poster. We see him wanted on a tabloid in Chicago where the movie was set. But there's a whole other deeper meaning to what this movie is really about. And it has to do with the yearning for acceptance and the sting of rejection. Sadly, what this movie proposes, and it was a popular movie, is that he becomes acceptable to himself and acceptable in the eyes of other people and no longer a victim when he recognizes that he can destroy life, he gets a gun in his hand and he is someone. It is chilling how he echoes exactly what the killer said in his own words 
writing in his morally deranged blog, Who's the alpha male now, bitches? In so many heroes' stories, and yes, as perverse as it sounds, the killer thought he was acting heroically. In Wanted, in all the hero stories, in all the superhero stories, there's always some original loss, some unwanted change, some disruption, some wound from which the hero attempts to heal and from which their heroism is born. There are a lot of griefs and losses in this society right now, and they're coming out in all kinds of different ways. There are some that are particularly challenging, and they should be challenging, to people who look like me. White men. This culture and this society is shifting. We will soon be a majority-minority country. We white men, and by extension I would say all men as well, are being challenged to share power in ways that past generations of white men have not been asked to do so. And I've got to be honest, it challenges me all the time. And sometimes I know I'm not up to the task. And there's all kinds of men in this society that are saying, no, we don't recognize the challenge as a valid one. And so we're going to react by objectifying women more, by greater violence, greater addiction. There's so much economic insecurity in this culture right now, and people are feeling in all kinds of ways Fear that makes us demonize others, those out there, those who are threatening us, our way of life. And I think some of this is just this past decade as well, too, this past decade plus. I don't think we as a society have ever come to terms with what happened to us on September 11th. I mean, beyond the wars and beyond the flag waving, I don't think we've ever come to grips with our own loss and our own mourning. So the wounds in our society and the challenges and the challenging changes are here and they are real. And now more than ever, especially when I take a look at a movie like Wanted, I think we need better stories. We need better myths. We need better ways to become men and to become women. We need better heroes. If we don't get better heroes, this is going to continue happening. And some of us and some folks have started on that heroic path, and the heroic path is not the one of assuming power and control. The heroic journey, I think, starts and begins and continues in opening ourselves to this wounded and hurting world and listening to it and listening to it and telling our truth and listening to other people tell their truth. That's what happened this past week that was inspiring. Maybe it was the god-awfulness of what has happened and still continues to happen in Nigeria with Boko Haram, with a terrorist group that kidnapped those young girls who only wanted to go to school. Maybe it's the stories we continue to hear coming out of India of these gang rapes Maybe those things added to the atrocity in Santa Barbara and what motivated the killer opened up some space to say, we're going to pay attention to the motivations this time. Some of you 
might have seen this hashtag in social media. Hashtag yes, all women. It was a response, an organic one that rose up from hundreds of thousands, maybe more than a million online users. Because the defensive reaction on the part of many men, not all of us, but many men, when it got pointed out that this killer was motivated by deep hatred of women, was to say, well, not all of us, not all men believe this. Not all men act this way. The response was, that's beside the point. The response was, yes, all women live in a misogynistic society. And so you found story after story after story online. Yes, sometimes in 140 characters of less from the voices of women talking about what it is like to live with the threat and for many women the reality of gendered violence, harassment, discrimination, and oppression in this society. I tried to open myself up as well, too. I tried to listen specifically to my colleagues this week who were women, one of whom is her online blog is called Peace Bang, Victoria, Victoria Weinstein. I encourage you to write it, and she writes about the myth of the lone wolf and rape culture. She writes her perspective, her experience, of course, and it strikes me, strikes me as true about the ways in which as a single woman in her 40s, she is finding this culture to be more and more aggressively sexualized. Maybe it's the internet. Maybe it's the fact that, folks, pornography is everywhere. And I don't want to make this a free speech issue. What we're talking about is the disorder of our desire that turns people into objects. I want to listen to Peace Bang. I want to listen to my colleague, Liz James, who talks about that this week she had a talk with her teenage sons. That when they're walking down a street at night, they have to be prepared because of the reality of the society. That if there's a woman walking the other way, that she may see her son, who is a good man, as a threat simply because he is a man. And her son's response was, Mom, this shit sucks. He's not complaining about the fact that he's going to perceive, to be, perceive something that he's not. He's talking about this whole society and its violence and its aggression. I don't know, and I wish I did. And I've got to tell you, as I said at the start of this message, sometimes I feel helpless, especially after a week like this in which we see another act of such terrible aggression. I don't know how to change that. I wish I did. But what I also know, if you are feeling helpless as well today, is that underneath that helplessness is something real and noble and good. It is our receptivity to living a different way. It is our receptivity to a different reality where we can affirm even if we don't know yet what to do. Well, actually, I think we all know what to do. Let's start treating each other as human beings. But even if we don't know if that's going to be effective, we can still know who we yearn to be. And we can trust that. And we've seen some of these voices this past week. We've seen the response to, yes, all women, be not... No, not all men. Hashtag, yes men can. 
Yes, man can respond to the lived experience of so many women, can respond out of a sense of partnership and listening and basic decent humanity. Groups like the Good Men Project that has said again and again and again, and especially this week it is so important, we must enter into partnership, not domination. So many voices saying, and we need to lift up those voices because these are the heroes, these are the healers, these are the healed, these are the healing. That always a relationship based upon conquest and control, we knew it long ago. But we're bearing the deadly, awful fruit of it now. All forms of relationship built on conquest and control and domination, they will kill us. And they do kill others. Because in a culture in which conquest and control and domination and dividing the winners from the losers is how we operate, even if we don't want to, then there will be no place in that society welcoming to vulnerability. Honest vulnerability of not knowing, honest vulnerability of people who want to lead and want to listen from a place of gathering more people in. And when there is not safe space for vulnerability, you know what we're going to get. We're going to get people who immediately feel humiliated. And people who immediately feel humiliated are people more likely to lash out. None of this excuses what the killer in Santa Barbara did. But again, we have to learn and listen from our monsters and not just see them as isolated individuals, but as part of this troubled, still yearning to grow human family. Our heroes are, or should be at least, the healers, the healed, and the healing who reject that winner or loser choice that operates in all kinds of different ways and all kinds of different levels in society, who accept and set their hearts upon what is part wonderfully of our tradition, the universalist heritage that says we all come from the same source and we're all going to the same destination and so we ought to live with that in mind every day and not fall into that sick part of our society that says you are either a winner or a loser that operates from that place of one of Dickens' most odious characters that says there are only beaters or cringers. That's a way to humiliate others. And the only way not to be a cringer is to be a beater. For those of us who claim the ancient universalist dream and vision articulated beautifully by the progressive evangelical Rob Bell simply with these two words, love wins. To set our hearts upon that, to believe that, to open our hearts to it and to remember it. These are the sources of the better stories that we need. These are the sources of the better myths and stories that we must live by. These are the sources of any true heroism that is here. To know that love wins. We all come from the same source. We are all still going to the same destination. And maybe, just maybe, we can learn by degree, by slow change, to live like that a little bit more. Because yes, this culture is so deeply screwed up, but it needs us. We can't just retire from it and say because we feel helplessness or it's too big or we've become even worse, cynical. That's the way things are. That's the way people are. We just throw up our hands and folks, I want to tell you as universalists, we cannot believe that. We cannot believe anything we want to. Cynicism is a rejection of universalism. End of sentence. 
Universalism calls us, uh, calls us to something better. What we do matters. What we do matters a great deal. I heard it just yesterday at our 5K with one of the kids from Chester County Futures was there. She wasn't there with a mentor. She's graduating. She's graduated from the program. She was telling me about what she was doing with her next steps. And she kind of tapped me on the shoulder at the end of the day. And very silently and very deliberately, she looked me right in the eye and she said, thank you all for what you do. Thank you all for what you do. It is easy to roll up the red carpet of our lives and protect our own and become cynical and close down our hearts and become embittered, but that is not universalism. And it is not who we are called to be and it is certainly not what our society needs. And so I want us to stay in that conversation about what love winning looks like here at Wellsprings and beyond Wellsprings. And I know it's a long, engaged conversation and it feels overwhelming. But you know, at this point, we've got to sushi size the conversation one bite at a time. One bite at a time of becoming healthy and more whole. One of the things I'm going to do in my sabbatical is prepare for a fall in which this will be our focus. This will be our focus in worship. Next slide, please. This will be our focus. Renee Brown, Daring Greatly. So many of us have been inspired by her teachings on the connection between vulnerability and courage and resiliency and recognizing that sometimes in our deepest imperfections lies the seed of our compassion and our strength and our connection to each other. In worship, in youth spirit, in our small groups, hell, even our stewardship campaign this coming fall is all going to be focused and grounded and daring greatly. Leading and learning and living from the place of our most profound hopes for love. By the way, this is part of our culture here at Wellsprings already. We wouldn't be growing in the way that we are if it wasn't who we already were. It's just that I want us and I yearn for all of us to shape our culture here even more intentionally. So that when we go out into what is as others have called it, the mission field. <laughs> the door is beyond this place. This is not sanctuary from our lives. This is a filling and refueling station to go back out into our lives, to be the best people that we can be, and to know that our ability to care for each other, really care for each other, not take each other for granted, to know that each and every one of us is wanted, this kind of deep commitment to self-care is totally bound up with being able to care for the larger creation. There is no false choice between caring for self and caring for other because the healers, the healed, the healing, they attend to both and know that it comes, comes from the same common source, that all of us are all necessary and we are all wanted and that at the most profound theological depth and level, we are also already loved. That's what my universalist heart believes. We are all already loved. And that we can choose to live that way. Imperfectly, no doubt. But we can choose to live that way. We are all wanted. And we are all loved. And so today I want to end with some of the most important words that I know. It's from Paul Tillich, the great radical Protestant theologian, from his sermon called You Are Accepted, his theology of grace. And I turn to it in times of helplessness. 
Help me remember who I am and who we are. He writes, Grace strikes us when we are in great pain and restlessness. Grace strikes us when we walk through the dark valley of a meaningless and empty life. Grace strikes us when we feel our separation is deeper than usual because we have violated another life, a life which we loved or from which we are estranged. Grace strikes us when our disgust for our own being, our indifference, our weakness, our hostility, our own lack of direction and composure have become once again intolerable to us. Grace strikes us when year after year after year the longed-for hope for perfection of life does not appear when the old compulsions and addictions reign within us as they have for decades when despair destroys all joy and all courage. Sometimes, sometimes at that moment a wave of light breaks into our darkness and it is as if this voice of grace is saying, as if a voice is saying, you are accepted. You are accepted. You are accepted. Accepted by that which is greater than you, and the name of which you do not know. Do not ask for the name now. Perhaps you will find it later. Do not try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do much. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. Today, may we accept acceptance. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Source of love and grace and peace common source to all of life, common home to each and belonging to all. In moments of pain, helplessness, despair, in moments in which the cynical voices, the give up voices, the there's never getting any better voices may start to reign within us or around us. In these times, May we turn and turn and turn again. Remember our heritage. Remember where we sit. Remember where we stand. Remember who we are and who we can be. And let grace flow through our lives. Let love flow through our hands. So that all around us, all inside of us, We are casting blessing after blessing after blessing. Amen.